morning, everyone. It's good to be with you again today, and even in this wet weather, to find the warmth of fellowship that I always experience here at Grace Presbyterian Church. I will invite you to open up your Bibles to Ruth chapter 4 as we finish up the book of Ruth. And the interesting thing about the way that the book of Ruth ends is it shows us a reversal. Ah, that's all right. Don't worry. There's a reversal in the book of Ruth where what we didn't expect to happen, happened. Now, you may not know that 120 years ago today, there was a reversal in what people thought could happen. 120 years ago today, in our own state, the Wright brothers first flew. And many people said, man can't fly. Maybe perhaps they could glide, but not when they're heavier than air. But they reversed what we thought we knew. And in today's passage, that's what we see happen. We see what Naomi thought was true, change. And what people expect couldn't happen, happen. And this is what redemption does. Redemption reverses things. Redemption changes what we expect to happen. Redemption changes what we think is true. The outline today as we reflect upon this passage is Redemption's reversal. Redemption's reversal. But now, let us turn our attention to God's word. I'll be reading for us chapter 4 from the book of Ruth. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know. For there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redemption and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilian and to Malin. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malin, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel, 
May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the woman of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let us pause and ask his help in understanding it. Our good God, just as you send the rain and it waters the ground And so it does not return to you void. So also now we know that as you have sent this, your word to us and have sent us your spirit, that it will not return void to you, but will use, be used in our hearts for your good purposes. May it bear great fruit in all of us. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Last week, as we were looking at chapter 3, I introduced to us the idea of redemption that is seen in the Old Testament. And the idea of redemption, if you remember, was that if there was someone who was in poverty, and they had to sell themselves into slavery, one of their relatives could buy them back out of that poverty, could pay their debt to restore them. In a similar way, if if someone was in poverty and had to sell off their land to cover their debts, that land would seemingly be lost to the family, but yet God created the idea of redemption, that another relative could pay that debt and restore that land back to the family. This was a way that God weaves into his community the idea of caring for the poor and not allowing perpetual poverty to be created but restoration happened through redemption. And so last week in chapter three, we saw Ruth in the midst of the poverty that she and Naomi were experiencing, going to Boaz and saying, will you redeem us? Will you cover over our poverty? Will you pay for our debts and help restore to us? Now, in order for that redemption to happen, There's three things, and if you were carefully paying attention to Jonathan's prayer, he brings out all those three things in his prayer. In order to be a redeemer, you had to be a close relative. That's why we see in verse 1, Boaz going to this man who was a closer relative to Naomi than he was. You had to be a close relative, and the closest relative to the person needing to be redeemed got the first opportunity to redeem them. But you also had to be able to pay the price of redemption. There was a debt that had to be paid, and you couldn't redeem someone unless you could cover that debt. But then lastly, you also had to be willing to pay that price. 
willing to take on that debt, willing to take on the responsibility for Boaz to redeem Naomi was for him to become responsible for her, for her well-being, for her care, to take on Ruth and be responsible for her and her care. And those qualifications are why Boaz said to Ruth in chapter 3, I'm willing to redeem you, but there's one who is closer, and we have to go and ask him first if he is willing to. And this is what we see happen in this chapter, starting in verse 1, where it says, Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. And Boaz said, turn aside, friend, and sit down here. There Boaz was doing what Naomi said he would do in chapter 3. He wasn't resting until he could see about the work of redemption. And so he goes out and he tracks down this close relative and says, do you want to redeem Naomi? Now put yourself in Boaz's sandals for a second. Boaz has just had this remarkable thing happen where he was proposed to by Ruth. Where Ruth, this this young woman, comes to him who is at this time probably a confirmed bachelor, assuming that he would never have a wife or a child, and proposes marriage. He has this gift of Ruth that causes him in chapter 3 to say that this is a tremendous gift you're giving me that you're willing to marry me. He invites uh, love into his heart when he hears Ruth say that, I want to be your wife. But now what he's doing here is he's going and, and possibly seeing all that evaporate, disappear, be taken away from him by going and offering the hand of Ruth to this other redeemer. Don't you imagine that would feel kind of scary to Boaz? To be willing to lose the opportunity for love that he had been given? He doesn't have an heir. He doesn't have a family. He doesn't have anyone to carry on his legacy. And the opportunity comes with Ruth, but he's willing to set that aside. Why? Because he's a worthy man. He's a worthy man, as chapter 2 describes him. And that idea of worthy means that he doesn't want to follow his own desires first. But he wants to follow God's ways. And so we see him wanting to follow the letter of the law and saying, if there is a redeemer who is closer to me, I will offer him the opportunity to gain Ruth, to gain the land. And so he goes to this closer redeemer to offer to him the opportunity to redeem Naomi and Ruth. And so he goes and he says to him, sit down here. Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, bide in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. Now it says that he is offering this piece of property as though Naomi is selling it to him, but that's not exactly what's going on here. It's not that Naomi owns this property. This property would have been sold likely to someone else to cover Elimelech's debts. If she had owned the property, she could have used it to grow her own crops. It would have been an asset for her, but we see her in a place of poverty, which means she doesn't have a right of control over that land. But it belongs to the family of Elimelech. It belongs to him, and and It had been sold likely until the year of Jubilee would come, 
This is another way that God breaks cycles of poverty in his people by saying that every 49 years, we have a year of Jubilee where all property is restored back to the people. And so Elimelech likely had sold off his land to cover over his poverty and his debt. And, and what we see here happen is an opportunity where that property could be bought back for his family, for Elimelech's family. And because Naomi would be the, the one who, in a sense, stewards that land as the wife of Elimelech, she's the one that, that could, through the act of redemption, have that property brought back into the family. And whoever redeems it would not own that land, but would be able to use that land until it can go to an heir of Elimelech. And so he's offering this man the opportunity to basically gain that piece of property to use to grow crops to kind of further his agricultural business. And that sounds appealing to this guy. He could gain the opportunity to use this land. And so when he's asked by Boaz if he wants to redeem it, he says yes. And what he's thinking here is this kind of calculus. Okay, I can gain this land and I can use it until the year of Jubilee. I have to pay the debt, but I, I'll probably make back more that, than that. And I'll have to care for Naomi, but she's this little old widow. I'm sure she won't cost much to care for. And so he's thinking in terms of this opportunity that this redemption isn't going to cost that much, but it's going to gain him a lot. But then Boaz adds another wrinkle, doesn't he? He says in verse 5, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you will also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take the right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. You see what happened? The math changed, didn't it? He was thinking, I could kind of pay off the debt of Elimelech and get to use this land. And I have to take care of Naomi, but she won't cost that much. But Boaz brings in Ruth, the Moabitess. And all of a sudden, the math changes. For him to redeem Naomi means that he also acquires Ruth, not just to provide for, but also to marry. And that means that he is obligated to bring a son to continue the line of Elimelech, which means that his firstborn would not be his heir, but would be Elimelech's heir. To redeem Naomi would be very costly to him. It would cost him financially, but it would also cost him his legacy. It would cost him the ability to pass down to his firstborn son his property. His property would become Elimelech's family property. And he sees the math change in that moment when Boaz says, you would also acquire Ruth and Moabitess. And he says, I don't want to do that. That redemption is too costly. That redemption is something that I am not willing to do. And so he passes it off to Boaz. But Boaz is different, isn't he? Boaz is, Boaz is willing to redeem that, but those costs are the same. Boaz, by marrying Ruth, is giving up his legacy because the child born to Boaz is going to be Elimelech's heir, not his heir. Boaz is sacrificing his name and allowing his name to end, but Elimelech, the dead man's name, to continue. 
Boaz's understanding that he has to care for Naomi and care for Ruth and that, that this is going to be for their benefit, their profit, for their family's line to grow at the cost of his own. But what makes Boaz different? Why is it that he was willing but this man wasn't? You see, the reason why is because Boaz was a worthy man. And because he's a worthy man, the way that he views life is with a different sort of math. Have any of y'all dealt with new math? I've had to deal with new math. Uh, When my kids would bring home their math homework and they would ask me to help, I'd be like, all right, I like math, I can do this. And I would start to do something and they would say, no, dad, you're doing it wrong. I'm like, I think I know how to do this. And I would get to the right answer and they say, dad, it's all wrong. I'm like, no, it's not, I got the right answer. And they say, no, you have to do it this convoluted way. That was the new math. And I could never get it into my head how to do that new math because it was so different than the way that I was taught, that I was learned. Redemption requires us to look at math differently in our life. Redemption requires us to bring in a different way of thinking. And that's the difference between this other redeemer and Boaz. You see, this other redeemer wanted to protect his name, wanted to protect his legacy. And so he wasn't willing to risk that. And the way that he looked at the world, it all makes sense. But Boaz was willing to risk his legacy, willing to risk his name. Because he didn't look at the world just in light of the math of the world, but he looked at the world with the math of redemption. He was a worthy man. And so he looked at the world with a different variable, with the variable of God. How could God be a part of what is happening here? And so he was willing to set aside his own name to perpetuate the name of Elimelech. Set aside his own land to perpetuate the land of Elimelech. And the fascinating thing is is that even though Boaz was willing to risk his name, in redemption, and this other man wasn't, what do we see happen in this text? Remember, names are important in the book of Ruth. Names are important. And what is the name of the other redeemer? We don't know, do we? Look, it doesn't tell you. It tells you that Boaz goes up to his cousin and calls him friend. Now, how many of you don't know the names of your cousins? I hope you know the name of your cousins, unless you have too many where you may forget one or two, but Most of us would know the name of our cousins, right? But he doesn't even call his cousin by name. He just calls him friend. And that word friend there in Hebrew is Pilani Almuni, which is kind of like a sing-song name. Literally, what the commentators say is the best way to translate this is Mr. So-and-so. And isn't that an ironic thing the text is doing there? This man was trying to protect his name, but all we know him is Mr. So-and-so. He didn't really protect his name, did we? But whose name lasts? Whose name endures? Boaz's. Boaz's name is remembered. And Mr. Mr. So-and-so's name is forgotten. We all have a math that we operate on. And so often, the way that we operate on the math is what makes sense to our eyes. But what is the context of the book of Judges? 
that everyone does what is right in their own eyes. You know, the people in the book of Judges lived based on what, the math that they thought made sense. If the people around us are living like this, we should live like that too. That makes sense. If the people around us seem to be blessed by their gods, we should worship those gods. If the people around us have a king like that, that's the kind of king we need, a king who is strong and mighty. They operated on the math of the world. But what sets Boaz apart is that he's operating off of a different math, that he is a worthy man. And that phrase, worthy, again, highlights that he doesn't live by his sight, but lives by God's character. We even see this in the way that it speaks about Boaz, starting in verse 11. As Boaz gives up grasping his name for glory, we see something interesting. It says, Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. And may you act worthily in Ephrath and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your new house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore, to Judah, bore Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. What are they saying there? May you continue to act worthy. May you continue to be one who reflects God. You are acting like God in doing this act. And may you continue in that way. And through that, may you get glory. May you get honor. May God bless you. They're saying because you're living like God, we want to see God blessing you. You know, this is what the math of redemption calls us to do. It calls us to always keep in our calculations the presence of God. And that we bring Him into our calculations, He will bring us what we need. He will bring us what is good. But when we factor Him out of our calculations, we think that we are going to get what we want, but we don't. The book of Judges shows us that, that the people thought by doing what was right in their own eyes, they would be bringing themselves into prosperity, but they instead bring themselves into poverty. And this is still a challenge for us. You know, perhaps the best way you could describe the heartbeat of the people in the book of Judges was they lived out a phrase that you may have heard of today called, you do you. Nobody did you do you better than the people of the book of Judges. But how'd that work out for them? Not well. But the book of Ruth offers a different way of doing life. Instead of doing you do you, you do it in a way that says, I want to be worthy. I want to live a life that reflects God. I want to do the character of God in my life. And the beautiful thing that the story of Boaz shows us is when you live that way, it gets you where you thought you could never go. Isn't this what Jesus teaches us? Isn't this what Jesus talks about in John chapter 12? When he says, whoever loves his life will lose it. But whoever hates his life in this word will keep it for eternity. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And that where I am, my servant will be as well. If anyone serves me, the father will honor him. What is Jesus telling us there? He's telling us to operate by that kind of math. 
by telling us to not look at a situation without God, but look at a situation with God and to be willing to set aside our life, our names, our glory, so that we see God come in in a way that surprises us, to give up our life that we can gain a life that we could never have. But how do we know that that's true? It's because we see a proof for the math of redemption in Jesus, don't we? Jesus, what do we see him do? We see him come into this world. And by coming into this world, he's giving up his glory. Paul tells us he did not think his glory is something to be grasped. He wasn't like Mr. So-and-so saying, I have to hold on to my glory. I have to hold on to my inheritance. But he lays aside his glory. And as Paul tells us in Ephesians 1, we gain an inheritance. Why? Because he gives us his inheritance. Jesus comes into this world laying aside his glory, his honor, his comfort, his life to redeem us. But the beautiful thing about Jesus is that it doesn't end with the cross, does it? But we see where his own story of redemption leads. It leads us to him, not in a place of humiliation, but exaltation. That yes, even though he set aside his glory on the cross, he gains a greater glory. And even though he set aside his life on the cross, he gains a greater life. And we see a glimpse of this in the book of Revelation, where all of creation brings renown and praise to the one that was born in Bethlehem, where the saints and angels cry out, worthy is the lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. Worthy is the Lamb who is slain. He is the very definition of one who is worthy, who lived his life not on the calculation of the math of the world, but the calculation of redemption, that to embrace the shame of the cross gained him glory, to lay aside all of his power to be born a baby in a manger was to gain greater power, greater wealth, greater wisdom, greater honor, greater glory, and greater blessing. Because he wasn't doing it for himself, was he? But was doing it to receive the great blessing of redeeming us, of bringing us into his family. And just as Boaz wanted to redeem Ruth to gain her presence, her love. So too, our Redeemer was willing to bear the cost, not for his own benefit, but to gain us. He was a willing Redeemer for us. And through that, everything changes. You see, that's what redemption does. Redemption reverses things. And you even see this in this passage. This passage kind of structurally reverses the book of Ruth, 
We see it in the way that the author starts us with Boaz, bringing Boaz back into our focus, who was the last character to be brought to our attention. And then he kind of switches to bringing Ruth into focus, who was the second character uh, introduced to us. And then he finishes with Naomi, who was the, the first character to be brought into our attention. In that way, the author is bringing backwards the story of Ruth to where it starts, but in a way that reverses things. Because in the beginning, we see death of Elimelech, death of Malin, death of Kilon, and Naomi in a place of bitterness because she has no sons. But here we see Naomi holding a son, a son that is born to her. We see Ruth the Moabitess, the outsider who is a childless widow with no hope, now being an insider brought into the family of Israel with her own child, with a new marriage. We even see Boaz, the unmarried bachelor who had no son, now have a family and a child and an heir. We see a redemption reversing things throughout this chapter. And all of it hinges on the birth of the real redeemer in this chapter. You see this in the way that the women speak. Starting down in Verse 15, it says that, or 14, I'm sorry. The woman said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who's more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Isn't that interesting? Who is the real redeemer in this passage? Is it Boaz? No, what these women are saying is the real redeemer is Obed. He's the child that was born. Through him, in a sense, the dead have come to life because he is the heir of Elimelech, the heir of Malin. Through him, hope is restored. And isn't it interesting that the women are speaking this to Naomi? Because Naomi in chapter 1 had said to them, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. You see, she came into this with the math that said, because my husband's dead, my children are dead, I've got nothing and I'm going to die alone. God has forgotten me. My life is bitter. But through the birth of this child, all of that got reversed. She wasn't alone. She had the dead brought back to life. Hope was restored. And these women say, you have a redeemer right here in your arms. And his name is Obed. And isn't it fascinating who names that child? The women named the child Obed. I don't know if Ruth and Boaz were consulted about this or how this happened, but it says that the women gave this child a name, Obed. Obed, which is short for Obadiah which means servant of God. Just like you obey, or there's obedience when you are serving someone. Obed, servant of God. This child was born for God's service to bring redemption back into Naomi's heart, into Naomi's life, into the line of the dead Elimelech. God brought this child to, as the women say, be a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. Does that take away the pain 
that Naomi experienced? No. It's still real. She still has loss. But those pains have brought a different joy than she might have ever expected. God took her on a crooked path. But he was always working to bring her to this place of redemption. And that's the challenging thing about redemption. When I came here, I put in this address into my GPS, and I expect it to take me on the most direct route. God doesn't use GPS in our life. He doesn't take us on the most direct route. In fact, the, the way of redemption is usually probably the most indirect way that we could ever go. But the beautiful thing is with God is that's always where he brings you. He is a redeemer. And so whatever path you find yourself on today, if you belong to him, you know the destination. You don't know the route. And it may be as dark and sad and scary as Naomi's. But you know where you're going to go. A place of redemption. But how do we know that? We know that because of the way that this book ends. It ends with a genealogy. That this child that was born, Obed, the, the great redeemer, he's not just any redeemer, but he's the grandfather of David, the great king. Now again, think in the context of the book of Judges where everyone did what is right in their own eyes. Why? Because there was no king. And what the people of Israel needed was a king who was good, who had the character of one who was worthy so that that king could guide them into righteousness. They needed a king with a heart of redeemer who didn't seek for his own glory but would lay it aside. And what do we know about David? We know that he was a man who was after God's own heart, much like his grandfather and grandmother. But even David, he didn't always live that out, did he? You know, in the book of Jeremiah, we hear this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called, The Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And the Levitical priest shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to make sacrifices forever. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that day and night will not come at their appointed time, then also my covenant with David will be broken, so that he shall not have a son to reign on the throne, and my covenant with the priests, my ministers. As the host of heaven cannot be numbered and the sands of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the offspring of David, my servant, and the Levitical priests who minister to me. What is Jeremiah saying there? We need a righteous king 
And even David couldn't fulfill that. But he promises a righteous branch, a descendant of David to come, to be the king that we all need so that we don't live after our own eyes and our own hearts, but live as worthy people so that we become, like Jeremiah says, people that live out the Lord is righteous. But there's another promise that God makes that the offspring of David will be multiplied so they cannot be measured. Now, the remarkable thing about that is, how is that true? If Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise, how is it true? It's because when he redeemed us, we're brought into his family. When we, he redeems us, we are made his bride and his heirs and his offspring. And this promise is fulfilled that the offspring of David will be multiplied because Jesus redeemed us. And what this means is the story of the book of Ruth is your story. The genealogy of Boaz is your genealogy. And that means the path of redemption belongs to you when you belong to Christ. And every time you find yourself in those places of bitterness wondering, is God going to remember me? You can look back to the story of your family and be remembered, he didn't forget Naomi. He didn't forget Ruth. He didn't forget Boaz. But he brought them a child who was born, a restorer to their life. And in the same way, he will redeem me. But how do I know it's true? We look at the light. Just as much as we can count on that, we can count on God. Because the light never disappears, does it? Except for that one time when Jesus was on the cross and darkness descended on the light of the world so that he would pay the debt of our sin so that he could redeem us and bring us into his inheritance, his name, his glory, his light, his life. That's what Christmas reminds us of, the way that we are brought into the story of redemption through the great Redeemer, our kinsman, who is able and willing to redeem us because he loved us. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the story that is true, the story that is ours in Christ. And the story that gives us hope in darkness, that we are on the path to redemption, into all the places of fear, anxiety, sadness, despair. We pray that your light will descend into that darkness and give us hope. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.